Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Spoilers Special Podcasts. And this one is dedicated to one of the most overlooked films, perhaps unfairly, I would say, of last year, which is Lisa Joy's directorial debut, Reminiscence, which didn't do well at the box office and got absolutely trampled in the year-end lookbacks, despite featuring a cast including Hugh Jackman, mm. Tandy Wayne Newton, Rebecca Ferguson, and Cliff Curtis. Mm. Good cast. Good film, I would say. But, as I say, got overlooked. Didn't do well at the box office. So we decided to wait until the film was available more widely before we got together in the pod booth and talked about it in the spoiler special style which is exactly what we're doing right now. I'm joined by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. And James Dyer is also here. Hello. I like the fact that we've literally waited almost a year to see if we could then reminisce That's about not. reminiscence and I think I think that was that was quite on brand it's not yeah. even it's not even close to a year it's a bit it's, like it's well six, six months well it's a year since I saw it Chris I don't know about <laughs> you I mean like uh, I, I should probably disclaim at this point so I saw this very very long because I wrote the reminiscence feature for the magazine I saw wrote. this wrote, yes wrote in inverted commas I saw this film before I spoke to Lisa Joy so before I did the interview definitely before I wrote the feature and I loved it I really 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 loved this film and I was genuinely a bit shocked by how lukewarm the reception was both at the box office and in fact critically. I mean lukewarm is um, not even the, the the word really because it made something like well, according to this according to the, the internet which is never wrong no uh, 15.8 million dollars uh, worldwide uh, of a budget estimated between certainly in the 50 to 60 maybe even 70 yeah. million dollar range and it's a sci-fi of an original sci-fi mm-hmm. it's the sort of movie we keep being told they don't make anymore uh, and one of the reasons they don't make them anymore is, is when they do money. make them yeah. no fucker goes to see them <laughs> I saw this movie I paid to see this movie uh, after it opened in the UK I think it opened here in August or September mm-hmm. of last year and I went along uh, to see it at my local uh, picture house which is a picture house <laughs> in Greenwich I was the only person there and it was either opening day or the day after opening oh. day and that told a sorry tale. And I watched this this perfectly good, really involving, quite ingenious at times mm. movie unfolding and I was thinking, my God, if this had been released kind of in that sort of post-Matrix, post-Dark City sweet spot, people would be creaming themselves over this but it seems to have fallen through the cracks. Mm. Creaming yeah. themselves, Helen, you made a face. I did, a little bit. I meant in the in churning, they'd be churning milk into cream. That's right. I don't. Is that worse? I think it's worse. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. Anyway, Hugh Jackman's in it. You Hugh like Jackman, him? I do like him, and you like Rebecca Ferguson. Like Rebecca Ferguson, we yeah, all I love Tandy Wayne Newton. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Mm. All good. So no, it's it's a great cast. I think um, I liked it. I finally saw it on the plane <laughs> last week. As, As Lisa joined, then, did you? Yes. <laughs> yes I, I, I do apologize for that. It was on on my list, and I just uh, sometimes there are films that just slip by me and this was one for some reason even though on paper it's extremely Helen not just because mm. of Hugh Jackman um, but also because the sci-fi-ness of it the old school noiriness of it the old school mm. noiriness of it and and I liked a lot of what it did and I liked a lot of what it went for I think maybe I think maybe it wasn't just showy enough for people nowadays and, and the plot was maybe a little bit I don't labyrinthine know, was it, yeah was Confusing. it maybe we're in that Maybe. in that very sort of hard boiled noiry way yeah. where it's a little bit dense and impenetrable, which is what I really liked about it. And mm. it and it did really fit with kind of noir tropes. You know, it had that kind of post war energy that that yep. sense of people who have been already been through a lot already seen things we people wouldn't believe that, yeah um you know <laughs> there's a, an also massive sort of blade runneriness <laughs> to it obviously but there but there is that sense of you know a past and a history of these people and you know, with all our origin stories and everything nowadays, maybe people aren't used to not being handed it all on a plate. Yes, it's people's fault, Helen. It is the public's fault. I mean, you That's know, what I'm saying. M- maybe a little bit, but like, like I do think, you know, she's she's obviously had huge amounts of success in TV with yep. similarly convoluted, frankly, plots and similarly kind of obscure characters. And I think it's a shame that it doesn't didn't work in the movies because, as as you said, Chris, you know, this is the kind of movie quote unquote they don't make anymore Mm -hmm. and then when they do nobody goes to see it so you wonder why should we hear from Lisa Joy we should hear from Lisa Joy uh, and whilst we plug ourselves into a device we climb into a a little water tank just like Boba Fett and we remember this film Uh, as as our memories of watching Reminiscence play for us you're going to be listening to the interview that James recorded with Lisa Joy when was this last year at some point? It was, around yes. About, around about August, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, just, just before just around the, the film came out. Yeah. Just before the film came out. So you sat down with Lisa Joy. Lisa Joy, of course, is the co-creator of Westworld, along with her husband, Jonathan Nolan. But she 
very much is the creative voice behind this movie. Yeah. She wrote it. She produced it. She directed it. She wrote the theme tune, sang the theme tune, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, and so this is James's in-depth interview with Lisa Joy. In Joy. I'd love that. Yeah, wow. It's good. It's wow. good. Yeah. Don't tell them it was good. Don't encourage this. <laughs> Here's Lisa Joy. I do want to start actually talking about the end rather than the beginning because it makes it interesting. And also, I guess you've been doing interviews all morning and uh, you've not been able to talk about any of this stuff. So so yeah. let's talk about the ending, which is, of course, not the ending. It's kind of the middle because um, there's a beautiful line, obviously, in the film about there being no real happy endings because no happy stories, because happy stories have sad endings. And she says, tell me a happy story that ends in the middle. And I kind of wondered where that idea came from and also like whether you knew where this story was going to end when you began it? I did know where it was going to end when I began it. It was one of those weird experiences as a writer where normally I, I you know, they call it breaking the story and I map it out and all its uh, intricacies. And this one, it came to me fully, fully formed, like a sort of Russian nesting doll situation. And I just, I, I wrote it without an outline, knowing that there was this sort of recursive loop that was going to happen in terms of the narrative. And then it's funny that you should say uh, the middle, because in, in in the script, in the original script, instead of writing like the end, I wrote the middle as the last <laughs> line of the, uh, of the, of the film. Oh, that's so. lovely. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely thought. Just the kind of idea of existing in memory. Do you know what I mean? Just that sort of, because that's what a lot of people do, especially as they get older, isn't it? They say that yeah. uh, you measure that you're getting old when your, when your memories outnumber your dreams, uh, which oh, I think is wow, a really that's... lovely that is a lovely it. line. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a funny thing because people, it, it's kind of like Hollywood sells the idea of romance and being unrealistic. And in some ways, the entire three-act structure and narrative is an unrealistic template for life, although it seems almost a priori in terms of storytelling. Because it, 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 it's like there's an introduction, there's a climax, and then there's a denouement. But by the denouement, you kind of understand what it was all about, you know, and, and that's where the meaning comes. You get the meaning at the ending. Uh, and that's a, that's a good format for a book or a script, but it's actually not how life works, you know. Uh, you don't get a magical bucket of answers at the end. And in fact, by the time you reach the end, whenever that is, you're often a very different person than you were in the middle or the beginning. And so meaning must be extrapolated as time progresses. And one moment has no greater value than the next, you know? And so that's why this idea was, was kind of compelling to me was, uh, you know, when I, I remember when I was a child, I'm just meandering now because I've oh, had no sleep. But, uh, <laughs> I remember once looking in the mirror in my mom's and dad's bedroom I must have been about seven. And I remember taking a mental snapshot of myself and saying, remember this moment, remember what it feels like to be lying in this position, staring at yourself upside down in the bed, uh, in the mirror as you hang off the bed. And remember that when you reflect back on this moment, that you were fully formed and that you weren't some simple child with simple thoughts and ideas, <laughs> because one day you're going to be a grown up and you're going to condes condescend to the person you are now. And so it's like me in the past and you to lecture me in the future <laughs> about being condescending to me in the past. And it, it, it forms such a vivid memory. I really locked it in in that moment. And, and that's always kind of informed my worldview, not to mention how I raise my kids. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I can't deny you your full personhood in, in this moment and uh, the full range and um, import of, of your ideas. Uh, so uh, it somehow all ties into this film. <laughs> I mean, do you apply that to characters as well? Because the characters feel very vibrant. They have a very sort of vivid inner life. And it kind of feels a little bit like that level of respect is kind of applied to them as well. Like they're not just fulfilling a role in a narrative, they're living, breathing, sentient constructs. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the fun that I had with this was, you know, you're taking the trappings of a noir in some ways and saying, well, that that's not that's not all there is to a person, you know, a noir and, and, and tropes of who characters are, a femme fatale, a protagonist. Those are just shorthand ways of of feeding us an idea about a person. 
but you know as as culture progresses and as art progresses you are able to expand more and more on that shorthand and subvert it and go even deeper if if you can and so for me this was about characters who presented as say a traditional hero or a traditional femme fatale but once you got to know them you realized no one is just this one thing you know they that you're a complete vibrant full person who contains multitudes and the mystery of this is about traveling inwards and through time in order to see those multitudes and in a way the only way the guy can get the girl is by seeing her fully by understanding her fully so he can understand what happened to her and where she went it's in my idea a truer version of what a love story is right it's not just about oh i found you over here <laughs> you know i've i've obsessively chased around and and there you are it's about uh it doesn't matter where he goes ex- on the exterior i mean it does and there's a lot of fun fight scenes and such but he's never going to find her without fully fully seeing her in all her complexity it it feels a little bit like an allegory for just like relationship advice you know what i mean like it's so many <laughs> times you see this in films and in, in real relationships where one partner is projecting an image of what they think the other partner is upon them instead of actually taking the time to discover who they are and this the story is one of discovery like he thought he knew who this person was but it was all projection mm-hmm. and then he has to actually find out who may is as a person yeah i think that all of us every single one of us can be guilty of having some reductive gaze of the other, you know, um, and, and trying to pigeonhole them or keep them in a stasis, you know, of like, okay, well, this is the person I met and this is my preconceived notion. And don't, don't waver from that because that will blow my mind. Um, I, I know a lot of times, especially as a woman, you have to deal with that, you know, uh, even in terms of wardrobe and what you wear, they say you you can't undo your first impression, right? Yeah. You f- spend the rest of your life battling that. And so this is very much about the gaze of the other upon us and society's expectations upon us and how to um, almost assert your personhood despite that gaze. You know, May learns to use the um, sexualized and reductive gaze of people upon her as her own weapon. You know, it's a kind of um, it's a kind of switcheroo of that, and and trying to use it to empower herself um, instead of getting diminished. And similarly for for Hugh's character, I really wanted to unpack this idea of a male hero as always being this stoic, unerringly righteous and correct fellow. Like he is not uh, infallible. He gets his ass kicked. He gets tired in fights. He's incredibly powerful, but I wanted it to be really human, really relatable. And like any of us, he is often wrong about people and, uh, and he can act in ways that are less than noble when moved by great passions. I love the fact that you had him as, I mean, it, felt, it feels classically noir to have him be a slightly sort of morally gray character, but I love the fact that he's not only a, a veteran of war, but he was also, and he's kind of l- sort of left there and not dwelt on, he was an interrogator. And you get the, yes. it kind of underlies the whole idea of the reminiscence takes on a slightly sinister angle when you think where he was presumably introduced to this technology. No, absolutely. And, you know, in in many ways, too, technologies developed during wartime do become commercialized and and uh, adapted for, you know, consumer use. But it does make sense that if some technology like this existed, the first thing that would probably happen would be it would be applied to uh, understand what secrets people had. And that is that is a touch nefarious, right? There are parts of our minds that should belong solely to us, I think. Yeah, completely. Um, and something should remain secret, perhaps, but uh, no longer once you have this machine. I mean, how much did you sort of plan out how the machine would work? Like, how deep do you go into that? Or is it sort of like, because I, I was fascinated by the sort of almost um, sort of womb-like pool that he has to kind of sit in, the fact that it right. turns up in that big sort of with the filaments hanging down. So it's not like a, a hologram exactly, but it almost is. Like, it's almost real. It's more than seeing it on a screen. Yeah. Let me tell you, I rue the day that I was like, they should be in water because it's 
continuity nightmare. You've got a hologram to contend with, and then you've got wet hair, unwet hair, and then all of a sudden everybody has to be half naked and getting in a tank. I'm like, why couldn't I have just used a plain headset? Um, but I, I, you know, when I was thinking about it, I thought about how it feels like in order to really transport yourself and give yourself over to a memory, you'd have to be in the equivalent of a sensory deprivation tank yeah, or something yeah. where you would feel weightless and be able to allow your body to imagine that it was fully immersed in this memory. And then in terms of the hologram, you know, that was a really tricky thing to pull off because we wanted to do it practically and in camera and succeeded in doing that. We made for the purposes of this film an actual 360 hologram that Hugh was really interacting with. Um, but then the funny thing is, is I also wanted to make sure it felt tactile enough that even though we did it for real, I also wanted it to look to a viewer who is so used to VFX and everything that it could be a real technology that they could enter a room and feel. And so uh, just as when we made the hologram on the day, you have to project onto a kind of luminous gauze, essentially. I was like, they would expect some kind of, um, you know, matter <laughs> to catch the light and hold this image. And that's where the idea of the strings came in uh, and, and, and this barrier that uh, you could walk through and touch and interact with. It, it also, um, you know, I was inspired by like Seurat paintings, you know, mm. and what happens if you took a Seurat painting and stretched it out into long noodles. And that's kind of, that's where that came from. I mean, it works really, really well. Also, I think it's essential to that, that sort of almost final viewing where he steps into yes. the memory and sort yes. of transposes himself into that. And that, that looks stunning. And I think, I wonder whether, you. you know, you'd have got that, impact if it hadn't been like a practical sequence do you know what i mean like if it had been a vfx a post thing and he's talking to a green screen you kind of feel something would be lost there absolutely and you want to feel the reality of it and and there is no way to capture reality on film better than to shoot it for real yeah <laughs> absolutely there's no there's no getting around that that is that is the best option do you think, I mean, we've lost something as a whole doing that? Because I, I remember watching a thing recently that the, like, 99% of all visual effects are things you don't know are visual effects. It'll be little things like removing a pylon, extending a building, just tiny, tiny little quality of yeah. life things. And we take it in our stride. I mean, you must have this on Westworld where you're just like, oh, we can do it on post, we can do it on post, we can sort this all out. I mean, do, do you think there's anything sort of like about the need to do everything. I'm not saying going all the way back to like holding up mats in front of the camera. Or anything, right, but, right. But right. you know what I mean? Like looking for sort of creative in-camera solutions to things. I think that, first of all, I am, I am desperately uh, grateful to my own VFX team, but without which this movie would not have been possible. And without which the, ironically, the thing that we added to the film that was visual effects was the strings themselves. We added the erosion of the integrity of the image through <laughs> VFX. That's, that's the strange way that that worked. Um, I do think that visual effects artists are artists and that the way that they can best create and extend their world is by having a real image to build off of. Visual effects are also expensive, yeah. you know, to, to replace a tiny little thing here and there when you're an original film without a Marvel budget like mine is, you can't just say, you know, put it on my tab. I'll, I'll get to it later. <laughs> you're like, we might never get to this later. We need to, we need to figure it out like right now. Um, and so, so it was a mix of practical considerations, but also out of respect for the craft of what VFX does. I wanted to give them as much to go on as possible. And of course, lighting, by the way, there's, there's nothing that really replaces the sumptuousness of, real sunlight you know oh, i and, love and the lighting in this beauty. film just absolutely gorgeous just where you see it coming in through the slats just there's a real uh, sense of sort of sunset to so many yeah. of the sequences sunset sunrise but then you talk about when you've when you set this out that there was sort of it's a nocturnal culture isn't it so mm -hmm. the sun is a significant part of the narrative absolutely and and it's also a a measure in some ways of love you know if you only get sunrise and sunset to see natural light because the day is too scorching to venture out then those moments would become incredibly cherished and you would want to spend those moments with someone that you really care about 
right? Uh, you wouldn't want to just spend it like in the office staring out the window. <laughs> and so it naturally dovetailed with my brilliant VP, Paul Cameron. Um, it, it, it was a good thing for him because it means that I'm filming at magic hour for most of the love scenes. Yeah. Uh, it's a good thing and a bad thing because then you're chasing sun and you're losing light and <laughs> you gotta, you gotta really go quickly. But, um, but nothing replaces that kind of natural, natural warmth and light. Mm. I have to ask about, while we're on the subject of just the film generally looking stunning, I have to ask about one action scene in particular, which is kind of like, I don't even know what you'd call it, but I call it the sunken opera house, because that's kind of how it feels to yeah. me. It's that <laughs> just the most striking visual sequence. I want to wear that, because I mean, famously you've talked about how you love directing action and you take responsibility for a lot of action in Westworld, but where did that scene come from and that particular visual of it sinking into, is it a music hall like that? The sunken room? Yeah, I, it's a conservatory. Um, and I I don't know. It came to me, that visual, very early on. And it was in all the original concept art, even when I went to Berlin. I knew that I wanted something that was somewhat poetic. You know, the, I wanted the fight scene to have an associative quality to it that that spoke to something kind of beautiful, as well as, you know, the traditional action the fact that the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice is a recurrent theme in it, and Orpheus is this, you know, singer who can move the devil himself with with his music. It felt like, and and because music is such a recurring theme in this, May is a singer. Part of the key to the mystery is song. Song in itself is one of the most transportive vehicles for memory. You know, and so I thought, well, I should tie it in visually in the end here with something musical. And what better way to uh, sink a villain than a grand piano? <laughs> you know, I just I liked the idea that Bannister can't actually want to kill Booth because he needs you him. Know, he has to keep mm. him alive. Mm. So something ridiculous must happen <laughs> to get Booth into a situation where Bannister has to save him. And so the idea that they're fighting around this piano and the floor just gives way and it's rotten and it sinks down there was was just really appealing to me. And I also like the idea of tempo switches within this, um, where uh, a lot of the times the action is like fast, fast, fast and driving mm -hmm. and fast. And then I liked to kind of alternate between a high paced and then kind of muffled to allow for the exhaustion of the actors to to show so that it felt human. And also I think these oscillations in pace allow for the audience to not just be in there for the punching, but to also let their emotions catch up to the physical things that you're seeing on screen, you know, and to, to allow psychology to take as much of a front row seat in the action sequence as uh, the pure, you know, Fisticuffs. <laughs> 100%. No, I always think like the best sort of fight sequences are kind of choreographed emotionally as well as physically. Because yeah. there has to be an ebb and flow of kind of character development in the, the sequence. And you really get that from this. Yeah. And you want, and when you have actors as talented as Hugh and, and Cliff, you know that for them, the physical action is one thing, but they also need to know the mindset of their characters. What are they doing? What are they actually performing in that mm. moment? And it, to see the action unfold while also seeing the uh, loss and the kind of suffocation that the, that Bannister was going through was 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 really great. And I thought Hugh just did an amazing, amazing job. Yeah, it's lovely. And it also gives you, it really reinforces that sense of place, you know, the sense of the sort of, the sort of drowned city of Miami, of where it is. I mean, where, why, why Miami in particular? What, where did that? Because I mean, obviously, the idea and global warming is all too present. So you know, right. you can totally see that. I think there's a <laughs> resonance to this that feels all too familiar. But I just wondered where specifically Miami, and also where running from it with the slums and the barons and the various sort of like hierarchies. I, I mean, why Miami was. It's a coastal city, and sure. so it makes sense. And I wanted to show something that was a cultural melting pot so I could draw off these different references um, visually. But also, I wanted somewhere really iconic in terms of, you know, a lot of people know about Miami internationally, right? It's not a foreign place. It stands for something, you know, Disneyland and merriment and bikinis <laughs> and excess and carefree life. You know, you if I say Miami, everybody has a picture of, you know, 
sexy people in thongs. Um, and I wanted to juxtapose the carefree nature of that with uh, the more somber kind of uh, darker, deeper sensuality that might arise from, from this future. Let's talk about eels, because one of the big action sequences, this is quite eel-oriented, and it's beautifully done, it's beautifully set up. You've got your main character in a very vulnerable position. Uh, and then I also love the fact that not only do you incorporate eels, which is not done anywhere near enough in cinema these days, but also <laughs> you give Tandyway a chance to come in and kick some ass. And I thought that was a, that was a great move. And I wondered whether that was something that uh, evolved over time, because her character was different in the script, wasn't it? Her character was initially a man in the script. Yeah. yeah. But in the very early phases of it, uh, uh, her character was a man and, and much more a side character. And mm. then when I wanted, when I attached myself to direct it, uh, I, I, I just thought that's not a character that is as compelling and real to me. And there's a chance to really explore someone who... I connect with on a very basic level. And mm. to be honest, Watts is the character that I relate to the most in, in the entire film. And so to see her character played by Tanaway, who is one of my favorite action heroes, by the way, <laughs> um, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And I wanted to, you know, there's a lot of action and thriller elements to this, but part of the fun of it too, is when you see Hugh Jackman, you expect him to save the day in every single scene. It's Wolverine. And exactly. It's like, <laughs> where are the claws? And, and for me, I wanted to show a different side of him, a side that could be vulnerable and needed his ass saving from the extraordinary uh, Tandaway Newton. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's great, and again, it's it's that visual thing. It's just like bursting the tank, you know, having the eels, and that there's there's a lot of texture to it, and it just feels like all of these action sequences were, you know, not to be patronising, but incredibly well thought out. Like they're not just there to just to advance the story. They're not just there to give visual spectacle. They add sort of textured layers to this world you've created, which is which is lovely. Thank you. I mean, part of the the fun about being a, a writer is when you're writing an action scene, it looks very boring on the page if it's just scene <laughs> description that says they exchange blows, yeah. you know, kick to the head, punch to the jaw. Like nobody wants to read that and a stunt coordinator would do a better job of it. So I like to think of fight scenes like, uh, you know, like a story in itself. You know, you have to have character motivation, twists, uh, and you have to... Uh, experience a change in the character midway through. You have to have some form of metamorphosis. Um, but my, my biggest, and also unlikely, some unlikely twist that you haven't seen before, whether it's with prop or uh, you know a feeling or a subversion, there has to be something a little bit different uh, to differentiate it. The biggest test that I have is the bathroom break test. You know, you can't be able to start watching the action scene and see like a hail of, you know, bullets or, or fists punching and then be like, one moment, I have to run out and pee and then come back and see more bullets and fists and be like, didn't miss anything. It's good. You know, I'm, I'm back in there. <laughs> the story has to evolve in that yeah. time. You can't rely solely upon uh, upon the, the just the freneticism of an action scene. But certainly I can't because honestly, I could not afford to. <laughs> like, I couldn't <laughs> afford that. I had to have a plot. Uh, and so that's, that's what we stuck to. And then my incredible stunt team uh, brought it to light. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned sort of budgetary constraints and whatnot. And I wondered whether, because this is an original IP science fiction and all of those things kind of have like alarm bells for studios, don't they? Like, is that a particularly difficult thing to get off the ground? And Assuming that the answer is yes, you know, for a sort of directorial, well, cinematic directorial debut, like, that's a hell of a roll of the dice. I know. And, and you know, the, the script, when I wrote it solely as a writer, was a lot more producible than when I decided to direct it and suddenly added in a lot of the visual elements that I really wanted to see. But I, I just, I knew from Westworld how I could get 
a lot of bang for my buck, you know, in terms of stretching it and creating a, a, a big world. Um, uh, it being a producer on that show has been excellent training for, for directing. And I don't know, I just, I just took a swing and it landed. And I, and you know, a lot of that of course is due to Hugh Jackman, you know, it's, it's, there is no uh, support that is uh, more resounding in the entertainment industry mm. than a giant movie star action <laughs> hero who throws his lot in with yours, yeah. you know, and a lot of people also, you know, ask about the, the gender thing. And, you know, as a woman, it's, it's less common. All of these things are true, um, which is why it was just so great for a man, a man who's known for action a man who's known um, for having his pick of films to choose from mm. when he said, well, this one, this, this film that has no studio <laughs> attached by this woman who's never directed a feature. I'm going to do that film next. Uh, but that, that made all the difference. Yeah. And you're like, that was mine. And it makes you, you know, that's got to be pretty empowering. <laughs> I mean, I was like, thank you. Thank you, Hugh. This is great. Let's do this. <laughs> I mean, it was on the, the blacklist in 2013, wasn't it? So, I mean, it got yeah. some, some pretty big attention straight away. And did you, am I saying, did you write that around the same time you were writing the first episode of, of Westworld? Yeah, I, I broke them at the same, at the same time. It was it was a busy time. I was pregnant. <laughs> I was breaking Westworld, and then I I wrote that script. It all the script I wrote in the first and second trimesters, and it sold towards the end of the. Tri- I I literally measured in trimesters, wow. and then Westworld. I think um, we finished uh, at the end of third trimester. I think I was doing the finishing touches like two weeks after having a baby. <laughs> That's a busy time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird to measure it that way, but that's the only marker of time I have from that yeah. period in my life. I mean, have you always been what you'd consider a storyteller? Because I remember you saying that you you wrote poetry initially was was something that you wrote. Like, when did yeah. you transition to to sort of narrative storytelling? And is that something you've always felt an affinity for? I I never dared to think of myself as a storyteller. I always just kind of wrote for myself. You know, um, it's not really. A practical sounding job aspiration. <laughs> and I had financial responsibilities. You know, I'm, I'm first generation American. Both my parents are not from here and we weren't, you know, rolling in dough or anything. So I had really practical concerns um, that, that made me never want to announce uh, any kind of frivolous pursuit like, like writing. But, but I did love it so much that despite my embarrassment at wanting to be a writer uh, and how selfish it seemed to me, I did write just for myself uh, as almost a form of therapy or meditation, you know, because it's the one time where I didn't have to be me. I could be outside of myself fully and imagine myself in any world and any character. And as someone who was quite shy, especially growing up, there was an incredible stress relief in that and being able to be like, I'm going to check out of this world right now. Cause it's going to get, it's getting a little intense for me and I feel shy and I don't have a date and I'm going to write in this fantasy world where uh, this person does have a date and the world is very dramatic and exciting. Um, so I think, I guess it's, it's some kind of wish fulfillment, but I think everybody is a storyteller. You know, I think we all, tell stories it is a natural instinct and 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 the best way you can see that is memory itself right what is memory but the story we tell ourselves of ourselves and that story evolves over time and in some ways just telling the story of ourselves changes the story it's like Schrodinger's cat you know and it's it's funny even in even in in doing press like this the origins of this story are, are very personal to me and, but they're the truth. So then I repeat the story when they're talking about, you know, how this happened and it's it involves my grandfather and, you know, and, and this stuff that is deeply personal. But after you say it quite a few times, all of a sudden you feel like, is this a fiction that I've mm. made up? It sounds, it sounds <laughs> awfully convenient, you know, have I craft? And then you, I, I get confused and I'm like, I need a reminiscence machine to go right back there because because revisiting a memory and especially retelling a memory 
does change it. And I'm always very aware of myself and all people as potentially unre- unreliable narrators. Yeah. You know, unintentionally un- unreliable narrators because of that ingrained storytelling impulse that we have. Mm. It's, kind of, <laughs> it's very easy to sort of twist memory to fit a convenient narrative that maybe sounds better. Um, yeah. And I think that's in some ways how we remember things. Once yeah, again, it's that three structure, right? If a story just meanders along, it doesn't click, it doesn't stay. But if you give it a bit of structure, then you've got an anecdote for life. Then you've got something to hold on to. I think there's something deeply related to a survival impulse in storytelling, Mm. right? Because not only that, but say, you know, it's a cautionary tale, right? Which are what all mythologies basically are for children. It's a either a cautionary tale or a tale of that transmits a moral code. You know, that's what the first storytelling is. It's a generational guidebook, (laughs) right? To say, don't do this, do do this. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, just in the same way as with epic poems, you know, they would have a certain cadence and rhyme structure. So people could remember these long, long works of art. Uh, I think we follow a certain kind of pulse and rhythm in telling stories of our own lives so that we can hold on to them reduce them to in some ways their essence or something and then pass them on and have those stories be sticky enough that they get passed on it's our own personal bids for immortality and everyone does it everyone is a storyteller because all our society started as sort of oral history traditions didn't they everything was passed down sort of word of mouth and it's like it feels like nowadays because you know we have the internet uh, and other ways of conveying information it feels to me like stories now are more of a refuge do you know what i mean they're a place where people can go and i think it's always telling when you see storytellers who understand that in their work that they're trying to create a narrative that envelops the person that for the hour and a half or the two hours that they have their attention they're not sitting in the cinema they are in this other place and i wonder whether you know and and that's i think why genre storytelling is is i think so appealing because it's so much easier i think to do it using that medium yeah i I think so i think that nowadays fiction is strangely important because Sadly, facts are so under siege. Yeah. Right. I, I, it's a very odd thing to be able to say something that is scientifically provable and have it be just the beginning of a debate. You know, and it's yeah. like, well, is there no objective reality anymore? <laughs> Can everything just be debated as though it's just some mm. random hypothesis? Right. So, with truth and science <laughs> under a fair degree of assault, fiction becomes. A really interesting tool for transmitting a shared experience and outlook because you are building from the ground up a shared universe that everybody in a theater or everybody reading the book experiences in a similar way, right? I was born in New Jersey to, you know, immigrant parents, which is different to where you are. So we're going to experience life and, you know, your birthday was different. Your first date was different. But if we read the same novel, right? We are all living through those characters in that point of view. And because of that commonality, it's like, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, you know, the common denominator of experience becomes uniform. Therefore, some of the variables are taken out of the equation and we're able to find more of a common ground building from that shared root. And I think in that way, storytelling is like an experiment in which You test hypotheses and try to come to uh, some kind of consensus that um, spans across many different forms of humans and humanity. Yeah, no, you're so right. I think it's it's kind of a it's a great unifier, uh, great storytelling. And I think you know we've had great stories throughout the ages, but I do think you know certainly in terms of of genre fiction, not so much. I mean, even 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 in books and even in literature, not just on the screen, but I think specifically in fantasy, I just think it's in such a wonderful place at the moment. There's such a rich pool of things to draw upon. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's a great time to be a nerd, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Increasingly great time to be a nerd, but I think I think that um, I think that also we should be less vain as a culture right now. <laughs> I think I think more curiosity about the stories of others mm. and less curiosity about 
the sexy poses of ourselves <laughs> would be good for society <laughs> as a whole. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, on that note, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Lisa Joy. Thank you. Great being here. Okay, so that was Lisa Joy. James, have you climbed into the tank of memories? I have indeed. Uh, I, I, I mean, she's a delight as well. But and I, but I do, I feel the need to point out that my love of this film does predate my speaking to Lisa Joy and writing the feature on the film. So I'm not in the tank, as it were, oh for boy. this one. Oh, boy. oh, that's good. That's good. That's, that's good. very clever. That's very clever. Well, by the way, I've just read here on Wikipedia, which again is never wrong. It had the worst debut of all time for a film playing in over three thousand theaters. <laughs> Fuck. It's so unjust. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this film. Like I enjoyed the noiriness of it. I enjoyed the the future noir. Future noir is a, a genre that I enjoy enormously. Anyway, I just think mm. it's a, it's a it's a really meaty, lovely thing to get into. And this took, I think, a lot of shit for being what people described as derivative. Like, oh well, we've done the subconscious in Inception. It's like, guys, I don't know how to break this to you, but you know, ideas get reused and spun in different ways. And I thought this had a not... really nice twist to it. Mm. It's not the same idea. Either. It's no, not the same not idea at all. at all. It's not the same idea. I like the idea that it was exploring memory, the fallibility of memory, and also the fallibility of perception, where the whole thing really is like an exercise in male projection, mm. where he just doesn't know who she is, and he projects this template of what he wants her to be onto her, not knowing who May is. He just thinks, she's hot, this is who she is, without actually <laughs> bothering to get to know her. I'm going to save her. Indeed. Yeah. So actually, it's an interesting template on the male psyche and how men see women generally mm. uh, and this whole film is about him retroactively having to get to know the woman he should have fucking got to know in the first place and I thought it was it was great and sort of the scales falling from his eyes and all the things being pieced together and it's bittersweet and the ending mm. is really tragic yeah. as well the, in a noir style yeah. in a noir style mm. the, the tech is probably closer to Minority Report really yeah, I would than, say so than Inception mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that's true, and I think it's the playing with memory and the playing with reality, but without getting completely kind of lost in the sci fi ness of it. You know, this could have been a classic noir. You could have almost written this as a nineteen forties yeah. thing, where he literally helps her investigate the loss of a minor thing, and then investigates her life backwards. Yeah. It wouldn't have changed it much in in terms of what happens. You could play out exactly the same story because all the classic elements are there, down to you know going to the rich person's mansion and finding out the shenanigans have happened. So, what the setting gives it is actually a weird sense of timeliness, actually, because mm -hmm. of you know the whole rising of the waters, especially in Miami, where we had the collapsing building last year. Yeah. Um, it it actually feels very very plausible in a way that is not entirely comfortable. Yeah. I loved her world building. I love the mm. idea that you get mm. these land barons, people who literally wall out the working classes to keep their little rich enclaves away from the the, the rising waters. And the idea that it's this nocturnal society I mm. thought was great as well. People come out at night. You're like, your day-to-day -day stuff happens at night because it's just too hot during the day. Yeah. I thought, exactly as you say, like, you know, this is, this is part science fiction, part the day after tomorrow, not the film, obviously. Yeah, it's great. And I think that was, was, a, was a lovely canvas upon which to base this. I also like the slightly sinister threads in there about what this dive into memory was used for and the fact mm. that he's ex-military, but he's an ex-interrogator. He literally used to, for want of a better word, torture people. He used to interrogate people by delving into their subconsciouses. And that's really quite mm. unsettling as well. Like So all, like, all hard-boiled heroes, he's part hero, part villain, mm. very dark, shadowy past, very tortured, very tormented. Um, and, and also, I should point out, like, and, and I can't remember because I did the interview at least a decade ago, uh, whether we talked about this, but I love the fact that Lisa Joy has always been one where in Westworld, like she's the one who gets her teeth stuck into the action. Everyone always sexistly credits it to Jonah Nolan, but she's the action person. And I think she frames some really um, great sequences Jonah in Nolan, this. Actually, uh, <laughs> a woman direct action? What? Indeed. With eels. But I love the scene eels, with the eels in the bar. The band. Yes, the eels are in the... Yes, they come across the eels, they kill the eels, and then, yeah. So, But I really like that sequence. I like the rooftop sequence. I think that mm -hmm. there's a particular shot when he's... when they're falling in the musical. You know, he's... Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Stunning. Yeah. stunning. Absolutely yeah. stunning. Yeah. Really good. Uh, and I think it's got some very arresting visuals in it, but I think... Helen's 100% right. It's mm. not a showy film. I think the action is few and far between. It's quite talky. It's quite thinky, as noirs tend to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I do wonder whether it's just, you know, the Philistines in the modern age just don't really have the patience for it. Well, I, I just got a feeling watching it. I mean, you were talking about some of the films that it's reminiscent of, funnily yeah. enough. Hey. One we haven't mentioned, The Strange Days. Yes. Uh, yeah. Catherine yes. Bigelow film, yeah. and it, which is another film that, that, that 
deals in that sort of invasive tech mm-hmm. where they're taking people's, you know, what, what people are seeing and, and manipulating that in an interesting way. And that also revolves around a platonic relationship between this kind of, not that Nick Bannister is hapless in this in the same, in, in any way remotely close to what Ray Fiennes is in that movie. But you have, a, you have a hero who is constantly being saved by a much more capable best friend character who's kind of secretly in love with them, which is the Angela Bassett character mm-hmm. in Strange Days and the Tandy Wayne Newton character in Reminiscence. So that it reminded me of, of that to, to a great, great, great extent. But I also wonder, looking at this movie, which is complex and is, is kind of small scale at the same time and... Yeah, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it, it didn't do well at the box office. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised because I do wonder, you know, your high concept ideas these days, they either have to be done really, really lo-fi mm-hmm. uh, in order to kind of have a life, maybe something that people will watch on, on Netflix, like the the platform that, that film came out last year and had a brief flowering, yeah. or they have to be uber high budget, uber high concept, like... Lisa Joy's brother-in-law, Chris <laughs> yeah. Nolan, is is very adept at doing with Inception. That's true. And look, I'm part of the problem. Like, I it is the kind of film that I and would and indeed did like, and I didn't get to the cinema to see it. I just sort of was it the wrong time of year? Would it have helped if, if it was a sort of February film? You know, is it maybe? Yeah. Is it not summery enough? I don't know. But it, it's. I mean, and how much does me. do lockdowns play into this yeah, as well? Yeah, like, because it, it well. was, you yeah. know, and it's not a, it's not a happy girl. It's ne- it's neither the kind of kind of big budget crowd pleaser which lifts you out of a pandemic, mm. or the kind. Of, it's kind of it falls again in a, in a middle ground where I wonder whether it just wasn't what people wanted mm. or needed at that time. It's a film in a minor key. Yeah, and so anyways, even going down to that ending in which you have your hero being trapped forever Buried in this, alive. in this, in this, in this jail cell of his own creation and he deliberately manipulates offence obviously mm-hmm. so he will go down at the end of the film and he's he's he he lives his happy ending forever but the film of course tells you mm-hmm. that that's not the case tell me a sad know. story and end it in the middle precisely yeah why did it not connect with people what was what? what's your take on that even in our review of the year I think you mentioned it but we didn't we didn't go overboard about it but uh, it's a it's a very good film it is a very good film you know I, it, it does puzzle me and in a year where there wasn't an awful lot of I would say competition, certainly early on in the year. Like it was not as if it was a jam-packed schedule. Yeah, it it it, it genuinely baffled me. And I think more than like the, the I think the box office reception didn't baffle me as much because I don't think I really thought it was a particularly commercial film when I saw it. And also, frankly, during the pandemic, all bets were off for basically everything. I mean, June could have made you know, six pounds a packet of crisps, and I wouldn't have been shocked. I would have cried a lot. Of course, you would. but I wouldn't have been shocked because you know. COVID. But I think what surprised me with this was the, you know, the reviews were quite scathing. And I think, sure, like, I'm not going to be like, oh, people did not sound a lot. I get people, very erudite film critics who know an awful lot about the noir genre and appreciate it, just did not like it and found it derivative. But I, it had a charm to it. Mm. And I think, you know, even if you got noirs coming out of your ass, like there's, I think this has a place. And I think, you know, tech noir, not the nightclub, uh, mm. is, you know, is not a new thing, but I think it's still a fertile genre and I think there's certainly more to be said in that area and it's it's a perfectly legitimate playground in which for her to tell her story yeah. and I don't think that just because you tell a story in that playground you're suddenly ripping off Blade Runner. It's like, well, no, it's just, it's taking a similar template but it's a legitimate template and it works. And it's a very distinct looking film. I mean, you know, Blade Runner and so many of the classic noirs are all LA sets. Um, I mean, the closest I can think of, and apologies, I'm not a noir expert, um, but like the closest geographically I can think of to this is Key Largo, which mm. is, I guess, technically noir, but barely. You know, it feels much more of an mm. adventure movie, almost or a gangster movie. So this one has its own identity through that location. It has its own identity through the manipulation of that location. But given these flood walls, given this new reality that they're living in, and it looks incredible, not just that underwater scene with the piano, which is unbelievable, just a mm. beautiful, beautiful shot, but like so many of the kind of sunset or sunrise shots mm. that they go through, um, you know, the club she works in, the bank he works in, the lighting is gorgeous, the design is gorgeous, like it has its own thing going on. And, you know, Hugh Jackman and, and Rebecca Ferguson oh. and Tandy Wayne Newton, I mean, mm. there's nothing bad about that. Maybe, maybe the villains didn't make enough of an impact. Maybe that's it. Maybe. Maybe. Although, again, Cliff Curtis, perfectly Curtis, solid. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I do wonder about And again, the, the production design is excellent. The evocation of the machine and the way that he interacts with memories mm. is is really interesting. I, I, I just think I love some of the notes in there. They hit, the emotional punch is not pulled at all. Like that bit when she's delivering her final speech 
May. to him when May's yeah. delivering a file, but it's obviously to Bannister instead because she knows that he'll yeah. end up looking through his marriage. She knows that he'll see it. And I, that's absolutely heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah. And I think you really feel it because it's, it's strange. Like even for all the kind of flaws with his perception of her, for all the flaws between their relationship, you do feel that love story. I think it mm. does connect. Partly because I think Ferguson and Chapman have incredible screen chemistry. But something about that story, it, it just lands. I think mm. there's something about the yearning for it and the near misses. Like when she comes to the door and he doesn't answer because he's wallowing in his memories of her. And obviously if he had, then, oh. Yeah. It's the old, uh, every time I watch Romeo and Juliet, I'm convinced she's going to wake up in time. <laughs> Never happened. But next time I watch it, yeah. I'll tell you what, yeah. next time she's going to wake up in time, It'll it's going to happen. But um, but I think that that's the thing, isn't it? That memory, that speech she gives to Booth, but actually to Bannister, kind of justifies the tech element on mm. its own. That you couldn't do in a, a sort of classic noir in the same way. So you, that, I think, is really clever use of the, the sort of premise of the film. Um, and yeah, the, the the sort of almost element of them. I mean, it's 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 clearly based on. I mean, it's literally in the film. This is not me, you know, being highfalutin and reading too much into it. But it's Orpheus and Eurydice. Yes, it is. Um, and the idea that he can bring her out of hell. He gets this kind of one time pass, this one time freebie to get his dead wife back, and then he fucks it up. He looks back. He looks back. He can't. He can't trust. He can't just have faith. He can't. You know just be open to her and I think so that element of it I thought worked really really well as well and kind of um, yeah I mean if you're going to tell a classic story tell a classic story you know steal from the best steal mm. from the stories that have been around for literally thousands of years mm. it's really nicely structured as well I mm. think the way the way the mystery unfolds uh, the way for example we hear that knock initially we hear the, the you know whenever she may turns up at the next place but we don't really know it's her until until later on uh, just the, the, very nicely layered, mm. I would say. Yeah. In fact, I assumed it wasn't her when I was watching it. Oh, really? So, yeah, okay. initially. That's interesting. Mm. And it's also good on things like obsession and depression. I'm sure we've all been through tough breakups in our lives and we've all had those moments where we're, we're, we're wallowing in <laughs> Who memories. among us hasn't delved into our ex's subconscious to sift <laughs> through their minds? Um no? Was his own no, sub- just me. Just, That's just, true. Just Facebook. Yeah. Just Facebook. Yeah, just Facebook. <laughs> yes, it's essentially the, it's the equivalent yeah. of cyber stalking her friends, isn't it? It's just like, <laughs> what are they up to on Facebook? What are they? Oh, they're having a life without me. Oh, God great. damn it! Ah, I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. It's really good and stuff like that as well. Mm. Which is, which is, I, I guess you know, I haven't seen as much Westworld as you, Jimbo. Obviously, I'm not the host of the Pilot TV podcast. That's right. Uh, but it seems to me that you know this is something that Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan do. On that show, they 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 marry these. They like a labyrinth. Mm. They like a labyrinth, but they marry these these weighty themes mm. to uh, and very relatable themes to something that's very very high concept and very very hard sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm a big fan of Westworld. I know, like some people didn't enjoy it as it went along. I think everyone loved the first season, mm. and then the second second season actually I think has some of the best episodes that that show's ever had in it. It's just a much slower paced one. But uh, and then the third one is an entirely different beast, but one that I enjoy also. Mm. So, there you go. <laughs> Scathing criticism there of <laughs> Westworld season three. But again, it's been really divisive on the Pilot TV podcast. Boyd slagged it off to I have, and he hated season three of Westworld. Uh, and Don't I didn't you. watch it for a very long time because I trust Boyd. But it turns out Boyd is full of shit because it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust Boyd. No. Ever. Uh, except when he's right about stuff, uh, which is most of the time. Anyway, okay. uh, let's talk about the the central trio, shall mm-hmm. we? Let's talk about Hugh Jackman as Nick Bannister, who is not, as you might think, a man who shoplifts in a stair shop. It's a good joke. Okay. Nick, wow. Nick Bannister. It's certainly a joke in inverted commas. Is of, it a joke? Of, I think <laughs> Are we going it's hard with a joke? To, it's hard to say. <laughs> okay. Give it time. Give it time. It'll sure. ripple outwards. Oh, it'll be hilarious when it lands. <laughs> it, it'll land. It'll <laughs> land. One day you'll like be walking along. Yeah. And then that memory will come back unbidden. <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, I reminisce that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's exactly what we'll say. Yes. Nick yes. Bannister, hard bitten Miami PD. Mm. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, there is a traditional uh, cavill, uh, if you will, uh, about characters like this where. Would that person really be in that good shape? Maybe not. <laughs> well, um, lying down in the tank all the time. Yeah. Or just you know, <laughs> drinking lots of booze. And yeah. Stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there, there, there's there, you, one could quibble with his physicality, but I, I actually wouldn't quibble with him. I think he's, I think he's good. I like him, even when he's not being Wolverine. 
um, which, as you know, is the only acceptable real canonical Hugh Jackman and everything yeah. else he does. Is it really the only canonical acceptable Hugh Jackman? Mm, I mean, look, he, I know he does other things, but he's I, the I greatest like showman. Just, yeah, he's he's a pretty good showman. He is. Yeah. He's Stanley never from Swordfish. Enough. Never, That's her line, not never. His. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. And technically, not even hers. No, true, mm, true. Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my point mm-hmm. being, I quite liked him in this, and I think I, I think they kind him. of no, but like, <laughs> is, is he the most memorable character that Hugh Jackman's ever played? No. Oh, but sorry, I Helen. Were think... you? Did someone uh, did the stewardess ask if you wanted peanuts when you were watching this? Was your mind momentarily distracted from Hugh Jackman? <laughs> I don't think I actually had to pause at all. I think I watched it right through. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good on a plane. That's that's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. Unless right. you two bloody interrupted me, you're probably kicking the back of my seat. I'm I was watching it over your shoulder at one point. Is she laughing? Is she crying? Is What's she happening? laughing? Sorry, which bit in reminiscence would she be laughing? <laughs> oh, you know, the really funny gag bit. <laughs> the really um, funny gag about nicking banisters. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> God, That's a was, good joke. It was classic. It's going to ripple outwards, I tell yeah. you. It's going to yeah. land. Yeah. <laughs> which bit do you laugh I at? like the fact that Helen, always always liking to be in theme, watched Reminiscence and Key Largo on the way to Florida on I a plane. Did. That was proper. <laughs> yeah. That was absolutely yeah, proper. Yeah, it was two, yeah. two, two um, Florida thrillers on my way to Florida. Yes. Disappointed you didn't watch True Lies as well. Oh man! I well, I actually I did think of it because I drove down to the Keys and I was really didn't blow them up with a nuclear weapon. No, and and not a single <laughs> Harrier jump jet landed in front of me on my way, and I was a bit like, "What the frick was the point?" Having of this? just been to an immersive Star Wars hotel, I know I kind of expected the world, yeah. the world was an immersive, to be more immersive hotel. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, that was a bit annoying. I didn't tell you what I, uh, on the podcast, when we, because we're doing this after we returned from the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser immersive hotel experience at Walt Disney World, Orlando. <laughs> uh, <laughs> reservations open now. <laughs> Go to DisneyWorld.com, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> on the way over, I didn't watch Reminiscence uh, or Key Largo. But I did watch a, uh, I watched Derek Delgado's in and of itself on Disney oh, Plus, yes, which, you said was which is fantastic. So Derek Delgado is a he's a magician, sleight of hand magician slash mentalist who did a stage show called In and of Itself, which was directed by Frank Oz. So there's a kind of Star Wars link, and it's tremendous. And I'm going to say very little else about it other than you know it's great. It's on Disney Plus. It's 90 minutes long. It will blow your mind. Check it out. And then I watched Kimmy. <laughs> The Steven Soderbergh film. The Steven Soderbergh film. film. Immediately after finishing In and of Itself, written by and starring Derek Delgado. Who was the first actor on screen in Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy? Derek fucking Delgado. What are the chances, people? I fear we may have strayed from the path Anyway, so Nick Bannister, I thought... I like that he had those layers. I like that he had uh, like you know, a onion. past where he, yes, uh, a past where he had been, <laughs> you could get into Shrek if you're going, I don't have, we, we're not making this a Shrek thing. Um, Couldn't peel Hugh Jackman like an onion, could you, Helen? No. What? Ew. I bet you could. Bring tears to your eyes. <laughs> what is happening? So I like that they give him, you know, this dark past. He's, he's, Developed these skills essentially against his will, like using them for interrogation, and is now. I think there's a sense that he's trying to kind of get some kind of redemption and use them in a more positive sense for people. And he, there does seem to be an element of you know he's not in this for the money; he's in this to kind of to help people to an extent. You've got all those uh, conversations with him, and I've forgotten Tendi Way's character name. What? Well, what? You've got all those conversations between uh, Bannister and Watts about you know she's trying to like we need paying clients here, we're going to go out of business. And he's like, eh, it's fine, don't worry about it, kind of thing. So I like that idea of, you know, he has a dark past, but he's not necessarily a bad person. I thought that was quite well done. And it did allow Hugh Jackman to play to his strengths of kind of being charming, but also, you know, not quite at ease with himself, maybe, mm. in some way. And I thought that worked well. But yeah, you're right. The, the main thrust and the main, the main meat of the character is this relationship he has with a woman he hardly knows and doesn't really understand because like a lot of men, he just goes, oh my God, she's super beautiful. I'm in love. Yeah. Let's not ask any further questions. Yeah. I've seen enough. (laughs) Defense rests, your honor. Yeah. So, you know, that, that relationship was, was kind of interesting. And, And I think it was interesting that she goes into it with these very impure motives with this very, she's on a mission, basically. She's been ordered to do what she does and been ordered to mm-hmm. kind of go through what she does um, and she has to because of Baca, because mm-hmm. of her addiction. 
and then despite herself, you know, see something in him, develop some kind of feelings for him, despite him being a complete idiot <laughs> about her. Yeah. So, you know, that, that kind of worked for me. I thought it was quite, quite poignant. Mm. She's not your typical femme fatale, if we're going to apply noir archetypes to this. She's not far off. I mean, yeah, the, the, I guess the drug addiction is, is really the thing that marks her out. You know, singing in a nightclub, mm-hmm. being willing to strip at a moment's notice... Um, being You're very describing cool me so far, but yes, of going, course. Yeah, uh, you know these are all quite you know femme fatale. Being qualities. quite inscrutable. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, on the surface, I would say yes, she is. But I would say also the the fact that she does fall in love with him genuinely—that's not always something you would find in in, in noir. Mm. Um, the emotional connection that the, the two of them strike up is is different mm. as well and pushes that in a slightly um, unexpected direction. Uh, and and also her ultimate motive to to save a child yes. is unusual. I suppose you're right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's great. Rebecca Ferguson's great. This is not a revelation. No. Uh, Tandy Wayne Newton. Yeah, I, I, I felt like I wanted just... Did I want a little bit more from her character on screen? I felt like she disappears for a time in the mm, film. I think so, because I've read the useful, script for this she? as well when she was still a male character, his sort of partner in the business. Right. And that was rewritten with Tandy Way in mind. And I think she brings a different dimension to it than in the mm. first draft, which you can still see because it was on the blacklist back in 2013 or yep. thereabouts. That's right. But I, yeah, I, I think she's great. I like that when he is having his eel incident when he's having his when he's going to that eels gig that he goes to at that particular bar she's the one who comes in and pulls him out of the fire mm-hmm. or indeed out of the eel tank yeah um but you're right there are moments where she kind of fades into the background yeah it feels like there's there's a big part in the sort of last third of the film mm. where she sort of disappears and I maybe would have liked her to be injected back into it there because I do really like their relationship you know me mm. I, I keep banging on about the fact that there's something very healthy about seeing male-female friendships on screen and, and seeing that as a possibility and it not always being a love story. Even if there isn't even if a she little... Secretly yeah, in love but with even him, if yeah. there's a, an element of... No. Uh, I, I probably would there. And frankly, there should be on both <laughs> their parts because look at them. You know, I, I feel <laughs> like it's... Is there a sense they probably have as well? Maybe they have. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe. I never really got that, but I maybe. I didn't get that, but... Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But but you know the fact is they're working together. They're partners. They're an effective partnership, um, and that partnership is tested through the course of this film mm. on both sides. With her keeping um, May's secrets from him, and then him doing what he does later, and you know torpedoing everything. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, there's a real sense of kind of push and pull there, which I, which I appreciated and I thought was good good and well done. And uh, speaking of eels, <laughs> the whole act of reminiscing. That's Novocaine for the soul, isn't it? Oh, boy. (laughs) (sighs) I could try and work in some line about going over to Susan's house, but I just don't have the brain space at this point. Um, Yes, I I, I like the way that was done. I also like those sort of thread filaments that they Mm. use to kind of paint the pictures to make it sort of holographic. I thought it was was cool. In the tank, sort of, um, you know, like a a, uh, womb-like structure sort of floating in there. Yeah, so yeah. a sensory dep- deprivation, I guess. Yeah, it had that, didn't it? Mine takes over. And, and you know, the device looked similar to ones we've seen before. It wasn't a million miles from Strange Days. It was quite close to uh, Minority Report again. But mm. I feel like there's only so many ways you can get that sense of almost tentacles in your brain. Yeah. But I like that kind of the way that Future Noir often does sort of lead towards retro tech. Mm. Uh, and I think it, it fits that genre very well. I think if you have too much sort of like sanitized, clean, futuristic tech, it takes you out of it. We're going to have our used universe conversation. Yes, I'm hot on the used universe. But it is, but no, you're right. I think just like the design of it is gorgeously done. Mm. Uh, And the idea of their their headquarters being a bank vault is a nice little Mm. twist on that. The idea that they're breaking into people's minds. Absolutely. Uh, All right. Well, I think on that note, uh, that is it for our reminiscence, a spoiler special, just a little, not not the deepest dive we've ever done, but just a little splash, a little splash no, around. Because this is a sad story and we're ending waters. it in the middle. We are. We're <laughs> ending this podcast right in the middle. Oh, that would, oh, that would be a bold stylistic departure. I just stopped this <laughs> mid-sentence. <laughs> but it is the end for our reminiscence spoiler special. It's a good film, folks, if you haven't seen it. And have, listen, I know that you must have seen it, otherwise you wouldn't have got to this far into a spoiler special. Uh, yeah. well, that'd hopes. be just weird and perverse but if you haven't seen it go and check it out it's a good film it deserves better than it got mm. uh, but anyway <laughs> even though we've just spoiled the ending for you so. yes it is good yes. it is good start it is in the good. middle and then work your way backwards yeah. or something yeah. like it that. ends with Bannister in a tank 
when he can no longer tell the difference between his waking life <laughs> and, dreams. and dreams. That's right. It's a Moon Knight prequel. <laughs> Speaking of Moon Knight, it is one of the spoiler specials. Thank you, Jimbo. Uh, it's one of the spoiler specials we'll be doing uh, over the coming weeks and months. It starts on March 31st. Our first spoiler special will be up on March 31st. Moon Knight starts on Disney Plus on March 30th. We'll be doing weekly spoiler specials, one per week. Very exciting indeed, or at least one per episode. Mm. Uh, and we've got other stuff coming up as well. What have we got? We've got, well, we just recorded one for Uncharted. We've got Encanto. We've got Turning Red. We've got Hot Fuzz. We've got Back to the Future. We've got The Batman. We've got all sorts of shit coming your way. It is going to be a fun and packed few weeks, folks, here in the Spoiler Special. So as ever, thank you so much for subscribing. And thank you so much for continuing to show your support by subscribing and listening to us giggling idiots. Speaking of which, it is time to say goodbye to these two lumps. Hey. Uh, it is goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Totally. It is goodbye from James Dyer. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Caught in the act. It's goodbye from Jimbo. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to uh, go over to...